Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're smart, and I know you are, you know that Romans chapter 12 comes after Romans chapter 11. And Romans chapter 11 comes after Romans 1 through 10. The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrinal, solid teaching that Paul wants us to understand to see the nuances of the gospel, of the fact that God sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God transferred our sin to him on the cross and his righteousness to us by faith. And that he rose gloriously from the dead. After 12 chapters, 11 chapters rather, he comes to chapter 12 and he begins to say, so what? How does this apply? Why does this matter? How does it work itself out into life? And he begins, as our memory verse said, by looking at our transformation, by thinking differently, thinking with the gospel as our center point rather than ourselves, being transformed away from the confirmation we have naturally to this world and being transformed by thinking by our minds into gospel living. Well, then he talks about the body's responsibility to one another in our exercising our spiritual gifts. And then we come to verse 9, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 21, really contain 25 little phrases. Let me read that to just to set it in your mind. And it is an unbelievable snapshot of supernatural gospel living. Romans 12, 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Bless those who bless you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Resist, respect rather, what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The time of the New Testament and the culture in which the New Testament was written was a world very different, obviously, than ours. If I could 
put all of you in a time capsule and transport you all back to the ancient Near East during the first century under Roman rule in ancient Palestine, I think you would be shocked how differently everything was. No running water. Think about how much we use running water just this morning. How many applications of just water. No hot water on demand. You had to take great effort to boil it and to bring it to warmth. No electricity. No heaters. No air conditioners. No internet. No phones. I know that's hard for some of you under 25 to think about. No internet. No phones. No phones with internet. No cars, no motorized transportation, no banks. Think of all the implications of having your money if, was the FDIC insured? Think of that. You just go out and bury your stuff. Hopefully nobody found it. That was your bank. No home warranties if something broke. No homeowner's insurance very few doctors and the physicians who were practicing were in the big cities. If you were out in the countryside, which most people were, you got sick, you broke a bone, you were just there fending for yourself. No surgeries. Think of all that we have major and minor surgeries for. No antibiotics. People died of cuts. And got infected. No narcotics for pain management. Not even any cold medicine. No newspapers, no televisions, no way to find out what was going on unless someone came in the city and told you. No disposable diapers. Just think of all the technology that even puts that convenience into our lives. It was a very, very different and inconvenient place. All of those factors actually made interacting with each other different than we interact with each other today. You needed your neighbor. You needed your tribe. You needed your synagogue if you were a Jew. You needed your, your uh, uh, municipalities and your um, overseers if you were a Gentile. People needed one another and leaned on one another way more than you and I need to today. We can go in our house and need nothing from our neighbors or anyone else for weeks or months on end without having any interaction with anybody. That wasn't the case here. So when a person became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it had immediate and far penetrating consequences. One of the upsides of living in that day was everyone knew each other. One of the downsides of living in that day was everyone knew each other. So, for the most part, when a person became a Christian, it meant losing entire connectivity with their world. If you were a Jew, for example, you were instantly kicked out of the synagogue. Your family disowned you. They wouldn't sell to you at the market. If you were a Greek, you were labeled as an atheist who didn't worship the, the God of the Romans. If you were a Greek or Roman, you were looking to, to Rome before you were a believer as God, and now you were looking to Jesus, who was 
risen from the dead. It was, it was a difficult time for those who became Christians. You, you lost your connectivity to everyone. That put a premium on managing relationships. First of all, we're managing the relationships of the people who had shunned you and, and, and disowned you and disassociated with you. Also put a premium, that time did, on your relationships with the body of Christ because you found a new tribe, a new connectivity, a new group, a new place to belong, a new place in which you were loved and a place where you would express love differently than you even did to your own family before this invasion of the gospel into your life. Put simply, managing relationships is most of what the Christian life concerns itself. We said there's three relationships for a believer, relationship with God, relationship with saints, other believers, and relationship with the lost. So most of the verses in the Bible have to do with managing a relationship with God or the church or lost people. And this section addresses all of those dimensions head on. It's a list. It's a list of 25 different applications of the gospel. And we've been going through it over a few weeks. It's going to take us a few more as well. We're going to just cover one verse today, but it's plenty, trust me. Let me remind you of where, I've, uh, where we've uh, studied. 25 applications of the gospel for relationships. We've looked already at the first nine, excuse me, the first eight. Uh, love sincerely in verse nine, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, also in verse nine. In verse 10, be devoted in love, prefer one another in honor. In verse 11, be disciplined in relationships and be enthusiastic about spiritual service, fervent in spirit, and then uh, obviously serving the Lord, to serve the Lord, number eight. That leads us to our ninth of 25 applications of the gospel. We come to verse 12, and we will only get through verse 12 today. Finding happiness in hope, number nine. Finding happiness in hope. As we've studied Romans and other books in the Bible, we always say that that primary um, uh, aid to help us understand the Bible, to help our hermeneutics, is the word Context, right? Context, context, context. What comes before what we're studying, what comes after, that usually helps us interpret what we're looking at. Such is the case here. Understand that serving the Lord helps us rejoice in hope. And look at the next phrase. We need hope because we're persevering in tribulation, and that will come back to that in just a moment. Rejoicing in hope. Living a supernatural life living with new and fresh perspective on relationships and approaches to relationships, inevitably brings opposition, both from the world, and sometimes it can even garner resentment from other Christians. I want to be honest with you. I've, I've experienced a fair amount of pushback in my life over how I live, what I believe, my values, uh, theology. I've had a fair amount of pushback arguments, people not happy, upset, angry, uh, nasty letters, emails. I got a file full of them. But when I look at the, the pushback, the difficulties I've had in my life, it almost all has come from those who 
say they know Jesus. I wonder if that's your case as well. Now, certainly around the world in places where there's, it's not a, a moralized culture like we live in, and I say that in quotation marks, but for the most part, the people with whom I have the most difficult time believing and living out my faith say they know Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Paul understood that. So all of these little phrases have to do with God and the church and the world. And here at the core is dealing with the, the great chase of everybody's life, and that's of happiness. Rejoice or rejoicing in hope. Now, this word rejoice uh, is a cousin. It's a, it's, a, it's a cognate of the same word that we translate happiness. There are three words that we look at in the English that can be confusing because they're the same family of words in the Greek. Uh, blessed, um, happy, and joy. Now, I've heard so many descriptions of joy is different than happiness and it's different than being blessed. They may, there may have be different nuances here and there, but ultimately it's the same concept. No one rejoices who's not happy and no one is happy who can't rejoice and those come out as being someone who's living a life that's blessed. Blessed are you when. It's the same thing as saying happy are you when. So you could translate this, you're happy, you found joy, happiness, contentment, celebration in hope. That's why I've labeled this number nine, find happiness in hope. Now, in order to understand this, we have to kind of back up a little bit and say, where does happiness actually come from? Now, we're going to, in this uh, little phrase and in the next one, we're going to go back to what Paul has already taught us in Romans 5. Flip back over there for a moment. You want to keep your finger there for the next few minutes. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. I love this next phrase. Here it is. And we exult. Literally, it's a command. Join me in exaltation. How? In the, here's our word, hope of the glory of God. Now, we studied when we were back in Romans 5, a long time ago, the word exalt is different than the word exalt. One's with an A, one's with a U. Exalt means you're happy. You're, uh, you're, you're happy with something. You're putting something else up. You're, you're giving exaltation and promotion and praise and glory to something. You're exalting something. This is a different word. Exalt means you're happy. It means to overflow and to emotionally respond with joy, which makes sense here. We are happy. We exalt. Let us exalt in the hope of the glory of God. This hope is different than the kind of hope that the world understands, though. Think about vacation. It's different than saying, boy, I hope I can go on vacation this summer, meaning I wish it would happen. That's a different kind of hope than saying, man, my hope is so grounded in the fact that my family is going to have a week away together by the beach, by the cabin, whatever. And, and you, your hope is grounded in what you know is going to happen rather than you hope something is going to happen by wishing. Two different hopes. The wishing isn't a part here. 
When he says we, we exult in the hope of the glory of God, we exult in the knowledge that we will one day see Jesus face to face. Faith will become sight. We will be known as we are known. We will know as we are known. We'll have a relationship with him that's, that's physical, that's visceral. No more sin to wrestle with. No more sin to fight. No more trials to endure. As we look at that great day, and we hope. It gives us something, this is another way of understanding, understanding this, it gives us something to look forward to. Looking forward to something is not wishing it would happen, it's having your attitude change because you know it's going to happen. That's the hope that's here. Do you hope in the happiness of heaven, is your happiness built in the hope that that's real? That, that's what he's saying here in Romans 12. Rejoicing in hope. We find our happiness in what we know is going to happen, which is another way of saying our happiness isn't anchored or rooted with this world, is it? Now, we've studied in Ecclesiastes that have, there are things that can make us happy, and, and we should see those as gifts from the Lord. Yesterday morning, I was up early with some friends, and we were watching the sunrise, uh, and it, it, it was amazing. What a God to get! What a God who used colors that don't normally match to paint a sunrise. People don't usually put blue and purple and orange and yellow in the same thing. God does, and sunrises and sunsets. I mean, there are things to rejoice in on this this planet as long as we find them in God, but. This is different. We're rejoicing in the hope of what we know is coming. Remember what Paul said in Romans 9? It's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him, here it is, will not be disappointed. That's another way of saying will not be hopeless. Those who believe in him have hope. Hebrews 6, 18 to 20. I love this as a collateral uh, passage to what we're studying. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Look at that. Take hold of the hope set before us. Live in the reality that heaven is real because of Christ. This hope, he says in verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul. That is worthy of a whole sermon by itself. The hope we have in Jesus because of heaven is the anchor of our soul. It keeps us from drifting and from ending up in places that we don't intend. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. And now the hope becomes a person because Jesus entered into the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of that great Old Testament priest, Melchizedek. In other words, we, we have reason to be happy because heaven is a reality. Do, do we think often enough about heaven? Or do we spend most of our life trying to cling to this world because we think this is our heaven? Rejoicing in hope. What relationship does that deal with, by the way? 
First of all, relationship with God, right? We rejoice in what he has waiting for us. And our hope is anchored in Christ. Now, I'm always amazed at the divine logic of the Holy Spirit because if you are like me, and you read this, if you were the first century uh, Roman, an Italian reading this, you would say, rejoicing in the hope, and we've already heard this, the hope of heaven, and you would heard that little phrase and said, right. Do, do you know what's going to happen after this church service and what's going to uh, come into my life, the, the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations that I experience? Rejoice in the hope of heaven. What about life now? I love the title of that junior high book. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? The Holy Spirit is just genius. Rejoicing in hope, number 10, persevere in tribulation. Because he says in verse 12, persevering in tribulation. These go together. We can rejoice in what's coming and persevere in what's happening. Now, this little three-word phrase is loaded, and I mean loaded with theology and application, and we've already studied it, frankly. We come back to this workhorse, actually two workhorse words uh, that we've met before. Um, first, there's persevering. Persevering is a word that you know we've talked about this before. It's made up of two Greek words. These are important. Hupo meno. Hupo means underneath. Meno means it's, a, it's an abiding. You live in some place. You would meno in a house. You live there. So hupo meno is to live in or to abide or to remain or to make your residence under something. So you live under something. You say, That's kind of weird. You remain there. Let me read you from my favorite Greek dictionary. It means hupomeno, to remain under, refusing to flee, holding out, standing your ground, enduring, to be patient under stress, suffering, enduring, and to put up with anything. That's hupomeno. You persevere. Now, we're to persevere, live under what? Persevering in, we met this word back in Romans 5, thlipsis, tribulation. Same Greek dictionary, literally pressure, pressing together, figuratively of suffering brought on by out, outward external circumstances, affliction, oppression, trouble, difficulty. Put them together. Paul says, you're rejoicing in hope, remaining patiently under difficulty. Now, this should ring a bell. Now, with your finger still in Romans 5, go back to Romans 5. Because he's already told us something very similar. Actually, almost identical, but in reverse order. Remember how we're told to exult in the hope of the glory of God? Now he says in verse 3, this, one of the reasons that you know that the Bible is a divine document, no one would make this up. No one would tell you to do this. 
who wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. We exult. Our happiness explodes in the idea of heaven and that exaltation. He uses the same word and now he says, and not only do we explode with our attitude and excitement over heaven, not only this, but we also explode with an attitude of excitement and exult in our tribulation. What? What was Paul thinking here? I mean, imagine this. Imagine a psychiatrist or a psychologist staying in business who brought you in, laid you on their proverbial couch, got their white coat on, got their notepad out, heard your story and said, be happy in heaven and stick with it. It's okay to stay right there in your trials. Wouldn't you want to say, but I came here for you to fix this. No one would stay in business very long if they said, endure your difficulty. Because most of us intuitively want out of our difficulty. Don't we? Don't we look for the eject button out of this? How is it possible for us to exult in our tribulations? How is that possible? The next word, I hope you circled it when we were there, is one of the most important verses in Romans and certainly in the corpus of God's canon. Exult, we exult in our tribulation. Here it is. Knowing. Stop. Knowing. We can and we will only be happy in the midst of difficulty, find our hope in heaven, exult in the hope of glory, exult in our tribulations if we know something. What do we know? I hope you say, I, I want to know what that is. Well, he tells us, we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. Isn't that interesting? Same word, philipsis and uh, hupomeno. He says, Tribulation brings about perseverance. In Romans 12, persevere in tribulation. Do you see both sides of that coin? Because here's what Paul's telling us. You have your seatbelt on? You can only persevere and remain faithful and remain hopeful in tribulations by growing in the tribulations, which strengthens your ability to stay faithful and remain under them. Said another way, you're never going to grow if God doesn't bring you in his providence through difficulty. What did James say? Consider it all... What? Joy, happiness. Consider it all joy, my brethren... You want to hear that? You want another proof that God wrote the Bible? Who would write this? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Who says that? The Holy Spirit does. Knowing, knowing that God is basically making you mature through this process. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hupomeno. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, mature, lacking in nothing. In other words, God has ordained, please listen, God has ordained difficult circumstances in our life to make us depend on him, understand him, and release our talon grip on this world. 
Paul understood this personally. Remember Romans 8, 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed with us. He, he understood. He says, I, I get it. It's, uh, this is awful. But it's this, the awful scale here is not worthy to be compared to the happiness scale there. So his perspective. Perspective has an incredible power. I want to confess something to you. Sometimes when I'm studying Romans, I, I just get chills. I can feel chills on my arm when I see what the Holy Spirit's doing, and it's just overwhelming. I've teared up in Starbucks studying before because it's so incredible. And what's incredible is in this next phrase. The logic is unbelievable. Rejoicing in the hope of glory, rejoicing in hope, persevering in difficulty and tribulation, Number 11, be devoted to prayer. The next phrase in verse 12, devoted to prayer. Can I ask you an honest question? Think about when the times in your life when there's no major difficulty, no um, circumstance, no problems in your marriage, in your parenting, with your parents, with your neighbors, with your, uh, your business associates. Think of a time when there's just no flashing lights on the dash, Okay? And think of your prayer life then. And then go over, remember that time, maybe it's the time now, when all of the lights on your dashboard are flashing at one time? Which of those contexts and which of those circumstances drives you to your knees and makes heaven hear your voice at heaven's court quite often? It's the difficulties, isn't it? Doesn't this make sense? as we're trying to get our hope fixed in heaven and rejoicing in hope, as we're trying to endure under difficulties and circumstances, it would make sense that Paul would say, and the way to keep your sanity and the way to keep your holiness is to be devoted to prayer. Genius! Now, I want to admit, as soon as we come to this phrase, I have a great degree of intimidation, a great degree of personal conviction, because I want to confess to you, I don't pray as much as I want to and need to. I don't pray as effectively as I wish I would. I wish I was more organized in my prayers and praying, and I wish I were more disciplined in my praying, and I cannot envision a time in my life when I would not confess those same things ever again. Right? Does anyone come to the point where they say, yeah, prayer, got it down. Don't need to anymore. Kind of covered it this morning. Prayer is a learned behavior. Prayer is a learned behavior. The disciples, we only have them on record as asking Jesus one question, one lesson to teach them, right? What did they say? Lord, teach us to pray, which tells us that they weren't very good at it which tells us that it needs to be learned, which tells us that Jesus then said, okay, I'll do that. Here's a model prayer. Our Father, which is heaven, understand his place, your place. Hallowed be your name. Understand the distance that we have between our sin and his holiness. Your kingdom come, priorities, you will be. You can go, here are some ways that you can learn how to pray, Jesus said. It wasn't a magic charm that you're supposed to recite before football games. Simple request. Lord, teach us to pray. Be devoted to prayer. Be devoted here means, are you ready for this? Drum roll. To be devoted. 
It means you're disciplined. It means you're committed to it. You're devoted to prayer. So we could spend six weeks on this. We're just going to spend a minute. Let me ask you. How is your prayer life? Now, if you're godly, you're going to say, not as good as I want it to be. Fair. But a better answer is, my prayer is better than it was last week, last month, last year, last decade. It's, it's, I'm drawing more intimately with the Lord. I, I'm, I'm getting better at praying. I'm praying by myself more. I pray with others more. I pray about more than I did. Being devoted in prayer means you've put your shoulder to the plow to push your undisciplined heart to understand how to pray better and more. In all things by prayer and supplication, Paul told the Philippians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, pray without ceasing. Does that mean you walk around walking into walls because your eyes are closed when you're prayer? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means you're always in an attitude that God is there and can be spoken to. Isn't that amazing? It means, are you ready for this? You don't always have to say amen. What about finishing up a prayer and saying, I'll be back in a few minutes? What about just not finishing your prayer? Just putting a comma on it in your heart And coming back, being devoted. Being devoted, though, means you have a plan. You are intentional about it. And tribulation draws us to God like a metal to magnet. That's why Paul turns to this. What does it mean that we should be devoted to prayer? Can I give you just a couple of bullet points that I wrote from my own heart? Prayer should be organized. If you're going to be devoted, it should be organized. Do you have a journal, an Evernote, a OneNote, a whatever note, a Microsoft Doc, a a piece of paper, a napkin? Do you have something where you're recording things that you want to talk about? One of the things that is really sweet about my wife is that she she keeps a a Rick list. And what that means is uh, she's she knows she, there's things that we want to talk about, and so she writes them down, and so we'll sit down in the evening or on a date night or typically on a Sunday afternoon, and she pulls out this list, and she says, here's some things I want to talk to you about. I don't feel a lack of relationship with that. I feel organ- That's gracious of her. She didn't forget things. Create a list. should be organized. Another bullet I have here is prayer should be regular or incessant. That what, that's what it means to be devoted. It means we pray not just at dinner and not just at lunch and not just at breakfast and not just at care group and not just at church. We talk to God. Do you understand the God of the universe has invited you into the throne room to talk to him about anything, anytime? No appointment necessary. A third little bullet I have here is prayer should be detailed. You know, don't fall into the, into the trap of, Lord, we pray for the missionaries. What does that even mean? Lord, we talk to you about the missionaries. Well, you're talking to me, he might say, already. Detailed. Which leads to 
Another bullet point here, prayer should be far-reaching in our world and beyond about our life, our family, our friends, our associates, our church, our state, our nation, our world. It should be far-reaching. You, you have the world at the tip of your tongue when you talk to God. And then probably as important as any of those, this last little bullet I have for my own heart is prayer should be I know this is a new word. It's a made-up word. Soul-ish. S-O-U-L-ish. Soul-ish. Paul's accent, read Colossians chapter 1. Paul's accent was to pray for people's souls more than to pray for their bodies. But we tend to pray more for physical bodies in our day than we do souls, don't we? Now, if someone's having surgery, pray for the doctors, pray for their bodies. If I'm having surgery, pray for me, please. Pray for those doctors, please. But in addition to that, shouldn't we be praying for what God is doing on and in the soul of this person? In their eternal existence? Just read Colossians 1. Renewed in their mind, thinking differently, separated from sin, repentant, faithful to the gospel. These are the things that we should be occupying our prayer lives with. And I think sometimes we run out of things to pray for because we don't have enough soul data to put into our prayers. Here's a good study. You don't have to do a big, big uh, um, uh, complicated study. Just open up most of Paul's beginning, uh, um, beginnings in his epistles and see how he prayed for the people he did and just see the things he prayed for and you can learn quite a bit. Being devoted to prayer means that we learn to stop praying the same old things about the same old things. We're devoted. We're learners. Well, we... I mean, couldn't we spend another three months studying prayer? But this is simple. Be devoted to it. Get better at it, Paul says. I'm going to put a comma there and come back uh, next week into verse 13. But this brings us to a perfect place to celebrate the Lord's table.